Today's reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. It can be found on page 1060 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. matter. <clears throat> For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord is an un in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Those who are hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Karen. Let's, let's pray before I begin. God of grace, as we come into this room, we come from different backgrounds and perspectives. And some of us may come with more questions than we ever have had, and more questions than we think are even appropriate, maybe, in the realm of church, the church world. And we wonder, do I even belong here? Or how long am I going to even keep coming? And others come with uh, a lot of joy because you've been real, you've been present, you've shown yourself or your grace in our lives. And others of us come pretty numb and anesthetized by the comfort and the affluence and all the things we can fill our lives with but that seem to keep us still empty inside. And from all these places, we sit in this room. The truth is we're more of a mess than we care to admit to the people around us. We're more broken than we can even see ourselves. And you always approach us as broken people and draw us home and invite us towards you. Through Jesus you came and took on the brokenness, took on the alienation that we feel like we deserve so that we can be reconciled and drawn into your presence. And this kind of grace that, that says we're more loved and accepted than we ever dreamed, that kind of grace amidst our mess 
is like sweet, pure water in the middle of a desert. Will you help us to drink of it today? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Boy, I tell you, this the question is, why communion? And part of me inside is asking, why this scripture passage today? What have I done to myself? Because there's some stuff in here that I wish was not in there. Um, if, I was, if I was from maybe a, a different uh, belief system and I thought that it was okay to kind of pick and choose and say, well, I'll take the parts I like and I'll talk about that, then I would have skipped a big chunk of the passage today and, and no one would have known the difference. Um, but there's some troubling stuff in there that, we, that I've had to grapple with. And, uh, you know, it's almost like one of those things, I don't know if I can pull this off. Because it's, do you catch what, he's, what he says there when he's talking to this church? It's a very rare moment in the writings of the Apostle Paul where he's talking to this new community and he takes on this kind of language that, quite frankly, I haven't seen, or I can't think of other places that I see it in Scripture other than when Jesus himself is writing letters to the early churches in the book of Revelation and Jesus says, I know your deeds, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. That's kind of what Paul is doing. And he says, Jesus says, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know what time I will come to you. There's a way in which Jesus loves his church so much and loves his church to reflect him and his love and to be on point with that message that when it gets so bad that, as Paul says, suggests in this passage that they're so far off of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to look like. Um, there's a sense in which Jesus you know, might w- do things to wake people up so that it might still be saved. It's like the last-ditch effort to like, wake a community up. Paul's suggesting, he's saying, that's what's happened with Corinth. Things have gotten so bad that some of you have gotten sick and weak and some have died. And that's God's judgment. That's what Paul's saying. It's that, that, that dynamic of, I love my church so much, I want it to represent me so much that I'm going to give a wake-up call. And Paul's saying, that's what I see here is a wake-up call because things have gotten so bad. So you say, what is so bad that Paul would say something like that? I don't know of other places he says anything like that. What is so bad in Corinth that he would say that? And there's a lot of things that are bad in Corinth um, to choose from. Um, if you look at their community, um, there, are, there are factions. So one person saying, I follow Paul. Another person saying, I follow his protege, Apollos. And other people saying, we follow Christ. So there's these odd factions of who, who's the real leader of this thing that we're all about. Paul has left and been away for a few months And here's reports of what's going on. So that's one thing, the factions. Another thing that's going on, maybe this is what's so terrible, is that one man has even been boasting about his sexual exploits, which include his father's wife. So that's written about in this letter earlier. So, you know, it's a pretty exciting letter, huh? Some of you are going to go home and start paging through this. This is good stuff. So... That's one thing going on. Other people are openly going to prostitutes. Paul has to write about that. Another thing that's happening, there are lawsuits in, within the community. Like, I, you do something, I sue you. I take you to court, and we're in church together on Sunday. That kind of thing is going on. 
Um, some of them are being real stingy at giving. There's, there's not a lot of generosity. And then to kind of top it all uh, off, one of the biggies is that there's, there's a movement in the, in the thinking of this community that the resurrection didn't really happen, that it was maybe sort of metaphorical and Jesus didn't really truly rise from the dead. Which, to Paul, I mean, that's like anchor truth that was the spark that began the church, was that he really did rise from the dead. So of all these things, what sinful behavior is so terrible that Paul's willing to talk some judgment language and say, God's giving you a wake-up call, and it's none of these things? I mean, you would think, wouldn't it be those sexual sins? Isn't that what the church just hates? No. It's, they've got communion wrong. They've got the Lord's Supper wrong. They have turned the table of inclusion into a moment of exclusion. So that, picture it like this. Let's say you're, um, you're in that, that world and you're a part of that church and you are on the poorer end of the spectrum like a lot of the people in the church would have been. And, and you're what we would call today, food, you have food insecurity. We learned about last week at our, our video after the service. So you come to this church meeting, the meeting of the new little congregation of Christ, of Christ followers, of Jesus followers, where Paul has taught you to come together and to read scripture and to do the sacraments. Okay, so you come, and you come to the door, and you're welcomed in, but there's a layer of um, false politeness you sense. You and your friend, you're coming and you're both coming from the same neck of the woods. You're both poor. You both had a rough day. In fact, it was such a tough day that you didn't get, you didn't eat. Um, and sometimes you have those days. And so you come to this house of a wealthy person because only the wealthy pers- people in that day had houses that they could host something like this. So you come to one of these, this house and you're welcomed in, but you sense a layer of, of false politeness. As you sit around, you start to see the signs. There, was there maybe a meeting before the meeting that happened? You know, back in the days when Paul was here, this was a place where you were so welcomed and you sat at table and then broke bread with people who, were, who never would have done this in society, but here you do that. And often when Paul was around, the wealthier folks would bring extra food and it would be a moment of incredible heavenly sharing between the rich and the poor. And you come in and you notice there's no bread left out today. You get going, they start moving into the the itinerary of things and you realize that some of the other kind of wealthy friends of the host, um, are they drunk? Are they a little bit tipsy? Are they buzzing a little bit? There's no bread. As the service gets on, it's clear we're not going to do the normal breaking bread thing. And you and your friend, you start to realize that there's some clickishness here. There's some meetings before the meetings happening. And the wealthy hosts and their friends are becoming cold and uninviting. And you and the others, in a sense, you know what? Because you've lived this life for a while, you're not surprised. This is actually how things usually work in the world. There was this nice honeymoon period here with this group where it was different. Paul's long gone. We're forgetting. And I'm starting to feel excluded again like I do in so many other places. Turns out there's not, not that much so special about this Jesus movement. 
sounds, it turns out that it's clear that the Lord's Supper is just like every other dinner where a whole lot of people are left out and don't eat, and don't eat the same good stuff as the wealthy who could potentially host. And you're starting to feel, quite frankly, invisible as Barbara Glasson puts it, exclusion is being made invisible by someone who assumes superior power over us. We are rendered irrelevant and of no consequence. We therefore are pushed to the edges of relationship, to a place of silence, worthlessness, and loneliness. That's what's going on in Corinth. And so the big issue, the big problem, is that they have become an through their celebration of the thing Jesus said to do, they are becoming a walking advertisement for the irrelevancy of the Christian faith. There's no difference. In here, we make distinctions and separations over status and social standing just like everywhere else. We make people invisible just like everywhere else. God invented this feast, this communion meal as a gift to his church a gift to them to experience him and to be a place of inclusion rather than exclusion. And they have made that into a moment that is proclaiming to the world exclusion. Paul says, when he describes the words of Jesus, he says, whenever you eat and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. They're proclaiming exclusion by the very way they're carrying out the feast. And if you're a Christian and you've experienced the gospel and the grace of Jesus, you know if you've experienced that, you know that what's at the heart of knowing God through Jesus is that the wealthiest host of all has invited you in to the table and himself through the son Jesus has taken on the exclusion and the alienation and the loneliness on the cross himself so that you could receive the son's welcome and the son's place at the table. Our divine host, our wealthy host, never goes before us and leaves us with nothing. He always waits for you at the table to serve you. A Christian knows that the wealthiest host of all has offered you and invited you into a friendship and a welcome like no other. You're always met with this welcome. This is your experience. That's the gospel. And so when this church is getting that wrong, there's not a whole lot left. When the very place where God wants us and tells us, I'll meet you there, <laughs> Uh, you'll experience my gospel in that feast, at my communion table. At that very moment, a message of exclusion is going out. Oh, boy. It's almost all over. Now, I don't think most of, you know, I, don't, I think that this is an extreme case of a church getting communion wrong. Extreme. And I've never been in a church that is that extreme. I don't think that's happening here. We shouldn't underestimate the way that this feast needs as we eat it and as it comes into us as we receive God that we need to be challenged and pushed out to include in, in all kinds of ways that are beyond our comfort zone. 
we do need to be challenged by it, but our place is not to hear necessarily these harsh words. It, I don't think we need to say every time I stand over here these words of judgment that Paul says and say, this is what the Bible says about this feast, because he was talking to a very particular, very dysfunctional community at the time. What do we need to hear? I would suggest it orients around the, the, the very thing that Paul points to that he seems to draw from as the teaching point, the authoritative teaching point as he responds to the situation. And that is in verses 24 and 25 when he explains, or actually already starting in 23, when he explains the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and then Paul moves into explaining the words of Jesus to us at this meal. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. He's drawing our attention to the fact that, why, why communion? Because this is where God meets us and converses with us. This is where we meet God. This is where Jesus has words for us to know about him. Where Jesus says, here I am. Will you have me? Will you take me in? I'm here to meet you. And I want you to do this every time you come together. I want you to do this regularly. I want you to come to a place where you're offered me and you can receive me and you have the welcome of the wealthiest host in the world giving you himself. You know what? I, have, I think that we can definitely underestimate the power of that experience, the power of this experience, this table. There's a few pictures of the power of this table that I want to share with you. One of them comes from a great podcast called Radio Lab, episode called Are You Sure?, where there's this story of Jeff's struggle with faith. Jeff grew up around a lot of belief and a lot of church, and Jeff got engaged to, uh, to Megan, who was full of the same stuff, strong belief, and she wanted to make sure she married someone who was on the same page in her relationship with God. But one day, Jeff was standing in the kitchen, and he felt something shift inside himself, around my sternum, he would say, and he knew at that moment, I don't think I believe in God anymore. And it wasn't long, and they called off the wedding. And so fast forward, and he's sort of on one of these, you know, Kerouac journeys of finding himself, and he's riding his bike through deserts, and he meets up with these people, and one of them is a, a radio lab, eventually a radio lab journalist of sorts, and she starts charting his story as she gets to know him, and staying in touch and it's a winding journey that ends up, actually, to her surprise, with Josh and Megan getting married. And so she catches up with them, and it's this long story. And to, I'm just going to sort of fast forward to one part of it. So Josh tells how he's at this point in his life where he's starting to go back to church again. He found this friendly church that had a choir. And he, he didn't know what he believed still, but he said, I like singing, so I, this is a friendly church, and I joined the choir. And he says, then on just one Sunday, random Sunday, he says, I don't know what we were singing, I don't know what the sermon was about, but as we were taking communion, I was taking the elements, I suddenly felt the air change, he says. Like there was a palpable presence all around. Just almost like a tempest, he says. I felt there was something there. 
the interviewer asked. Was it something you felt in your head? Sternum, mostly, he said. Underneath the sternum, a tightness, a hand, something touching there. Very strange. I don't, I don't know what to make of that still. She replies, Jeff, right now, do you believe in God? Yeah, he says. It's just really different from what I felt earlier. And it's still very uncertain. Why communion? Jesus said he would meet us here. Tony Hendra writes a book about a priest who made this huge difference in his life. And his, his, the priest's name is Father Joe. And so he writes this book that's this, his own spiritual story called Father Joe. He talks about the day after his first walk with Father Joe at this monastery. He's a teenager. And he experiences this incredible shift. And so it's going to be Easter Sunday morning. He's going to go to communion. I'd never considered any of my religion's great stories to be actually factually true. As true as the eggs in the nest in spring, the sticky green lumps pushing from the dead branches, things I could see and stroke and know their actuality, the outward signs of inner grace. Nor had I ever met a man or a woman true in that sense, as natural and simple as the eggs and buds beneath whose untidy exterior pulsed that same evidence of the divine. But now I had As I sat in the Abbey Church that Easter Sunday, the morning after our first walk, the the sun flooding through the chancel windows, the triumphant Alleluia of Easter, bursting from every phrase of the chant, the music pure and odd and unique, its tonalities never going quite where Occidental ears would expect, it suddenly struck me for the first time in my life that the Easter story was not just a story. It had actually happened in this dimension the one I existed in, the here and now, or the there and then. If one part was true, why not all of it? In the monastery church, the stately Latin sonorities of the mass were reaching their climax in one of those big doctrines, the transubstantiation. Soon, the fragile flower and water wafer would become the flesh of Christ, confining within its fraction of an ounce the infinite dimensions of something beyond universes and event horizons, behind and above all existence. What had been baffling claptrap all my life suddenly became more than a proposition. It became true and real. I felt a welling, overflowing excitement in the perception that God existed and so did I. As I took the host a few minutes later, all the conflicting and confusing thoughts and feelings I normally experienced, the usual objections and reservations and logical, sensible, common-sense hesitancies were swept aside, fused into a whole of certainty. It was all perfectly natural. It made all perfect sense. This was bread, just as Christ had used bread. This was a meal, just as the, Lord, the Last Supper had been. How else would you take your God into yourself but through your mouth? consuming him in this ordinary, mundane way. The ordinary was the divine, where common sense met mystery, where logic kissed the cheek of the inexplicable, the immeasurable, the immemorial, spirit throbbing like veins beneath the hard gray asphalt of quotidian life. 
And he says this, finishes with this. What, what had always bothered and often panicked me, the wafer sticking to the roof of my mouth and having to be poked and peeled away sacrilegiously with the tip of my tongue, was welcome now, intended, a way to savor its nature before its material vehicle dissolved. The host practically burned my mouth with the presence of what it contained. I felt as if a shaft of light had pierced the top of my cranium and lit me up from the inside out. As mass ended, I ran from the church, unable to contain myself any longer, shoving aside the startled Catholics. I like that invention of a word. I banged through the huge gate and ran past the mass of oaks down the great path through the sweeping blossom-dampled chestnuts to the white-capped sunlit sea. I danced as I ran, yelled whatever came into my head, bits of songs, schoolboy whoops, Latin tags. I flung myself around in mad pirouettes. I tried to run up the trunks of trees. I tore along the beach as if I were doing a victory lap, a happy champion, happier than I could ever remember being. Another glimpse, uh, another picture from someone of why communion? Why communion? My final glimpse comes from Henry Nouwen's Return of the Prodigal Son. When he starts grappling with the parable of the prodigal son, towards the end of the book, he grapples with the love and the welcome and invitation of the Father. Starts wondering about that, which I would say is the welcome and invitation of this table. He says, The Father's free and spontaneous response to the younger son's return does not involve my comparisons, does not involve any comparisons with his elder son. To the contrary, he ardently desires to make his elder son part of his joy. The story in two sentences is this younger son runs away ungratefully and when he comes back after squandering everything is welcomed back by the father and a feast is thrown in his honor and the elder son kind of stands on the side not liking that, that amount of love being shown to the wayward son. This is not easy for me to grasp. In a world that constantly compares people, ranking them as more or less intelligent, I think that was going on in Corinth, by the way, more or less attractive, more or less successful, it is not easy to really believe in a love that does not do the same. When I hear someone praise, it is hard not to think of myself as less praiseworthy. When I read about the goodness and kindness of other people, it's hard not to wonder whether I myself am as good and kind as they. And when I see trophies, awards, and prizes being handed out to special people, I can't avoid asking myself why that didn't happen to me. He says, how hard... Uh, that is, becomes clear when I reflect on the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Each time I read that parable, in which the landowner gives as much to the workers who worked only one hour as to those who did a heavy day's work in all the heat, a feeling of irritation still wells up inside me. Why didn't the landowner pay those who worked many long hours first and then surprise the latecomers with his generosity? Why instead does he pay the workers of the 11th hour first, raising false expectations in the others and creating unnecessary bitterness and jealousy? He says, I hadn't previously, it hadn't previously occurred to me that the landowner might have wanted the workers of the early hours to rejoice in his generosity to the latecomers. 
He goes on with his struggle. He says, For most of my life I have struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. Now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all that time, God has been trying to find me, to know me, and to love me. The question is not, how do I find God? But how am I to let myself be found by God? It might sound strange, but God wants to find me as much as, if not more than, I want to find God. Yes, God needs me as much as I need God. God is not the patriarch who stays home, doesn't move, and expects his children to come to him, apologize for their aberrant behavior, beg for forgiveness, and promise to do better. To the contrary. He leaves the house, ignoring his dignity by running toward them, pays no heed to apologies and promises of change, and brings them to the table richly prepared for them. I am beginning now to see how radically the character of my spiritual journey will change when I no longer think of God as hiding out and making it as difficult as possible for me to find him, but instead as the one who is looking for me while I am doing the hiding. The parable of the prodigal son, he says in closing, is a story that speaks about the love that existed before any rejection was possible. And that will still be there after all rejections have taken place. It is the first and everlasting love of a God who is father as well as mother. If you wonder what he means by that, he explains a lot more in this chapter. It is the fountain of all true human love, even the most limited. Jesus' whole life and preaching had only one aim, to reveal this inexhaustible, unlimited, motherly and fatherly love of his God and to show the way to let that love guide every part of our lives. It is the love that always welcomes home and always wants to celebrate. I would say it's that kind of love that Paul wants us to meet at this table and that God wants us and Jesus wants us to meet when we think about his words to us as we come forward to the body and blood of Christ. And so when we come forward later, if, um, if you're a Christian and you're coming forward and you've, um, you know, you've, you've crossed over the line of faith, you've entered into this and you've been baptized and there's water up here to remind us of our baptism. We talked about that last week. Consider this, as you put the bread in your mouth today, you are, chew, you are chewing and swallowing a reality that pushes you past your comfort zone into a compassion that breaks through common barriers because God's compassion broke through the divine human barrier. The wealthy hosts let you in to the table. And so it's going to send you out to do the same, to not make the Corinthian mistake. You shouldn't have received his friendship, but he invites you to the feast far beyond just friendship. If you haven't yet become a Christian and we'll have this time of communion, it's fine to stay in your seats. Or I should say this, if you're someone who, you'd you'd say you're a Christian, but you're trying to respect some of the tradition of waiting until your baptism or waiting until your profession of faith or publicly joining has been completed before coming to this meal, I have a lot of respect for and the wisdom of listening to that tradition. So as others come forward, and if you're staying in your seat, consider, if you, and you're considering if you might someday, remember that Jesus has given you an unexpectedly lavish welcome.
and made sure that when you walk into the door of his house, the first words you hear because of Jesus are, you are my beloved child, welcome home. I've got a seat for you at the table. And know that when you walk in and sit down, if you're paying attention to this same Jesus and this feast, you'll look around and you'll see that around the table are Ethiopians and Scandinavians and pimps and meth heads and valedictorians and beauty queens and prostitutes and politicians and peasants and Dutchmen and Cajuns. I'm Dutch, so that's where that comes from. I'm I'm assuming I'll be there. And Amish farmers and Chinese bankers and white-skinned Republicans and dark-skinned Democrats and white-collar liberals and blue-collar conservatives. And if you want to venture into that kind of community and into that body of Christ, come and talk to me. Talk to me after the service. Email me. Let's talk about what it looks like to take the next step into the body of Christ for you. Let's pray. God of grace, I pray that um, we may hear what is being said in this very distracting passage Words you speak to us of incredible welcome. And so many people I talk to say, I am, trying to, I am trying to believe that welcome. I am trying to believe that grace. I'm trying to understand if that could possibly be true and it's just clanging around in my ears but hasn't yet kind of become this warranted thing in my life. God, help us. Help us to see you moving after us and moving towards us all our lives with your love. Use this time of communion in a little bit to do that in some of our lives this morning. Join us and be present in helping us understand the welcome of the wealthiest host there is. In Jesus' name, amen.